Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books and Art Channel. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and it is my pleasure today to speak with Dr. Amy Von Lintel, who is a professor of art history at West Texas A&M University, and she is the author of Georgia O'Keeffe, At Home in Wonderful Nothing, which is the book to accompany an exhibition catalog, Georgia O'Keeffe Watercolors, 1916 to 1918, published by Radius Books and the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in 2016. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much. It's it's very nice to be here. Well, we're really excited to learn more about this, I would say, lesser-known period in Georgia O'Keeffe's life. And maybe we could begin by asking you a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Georgia O'Keeffe. Uh, sure. Actually, it began um, not with becoming an art historian, but with my job here, which I took in 2010. It was my first job out of graduate school, and I've been here ever since. But in this area, Georgia O'Keeffe looms large, and there were many stories and myths, maybe I'd call them that, but you know, lots of talk about her time here. And as a historian, I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And know what George O'Keefe actually thought rather than what everyone thinks she thought. And so I started digging um, and there were archival sources and I was able to kind of, um, you know, rethink this period in light of some emerging um, letters that that uh, were very, very useful and they weren't um, available until basically 2006, which sounds like a while ago, 10 years, but still it's taken 10 years to really process them and start dealing with them. And so, um, yeah, I think the other thing too is that I love finding those kinds of um, pockets of research in a regional area and the panhandle of Texas is kind of isolated, but it's also a sort of crossroads for a lot of things, including modern art. And so once moving here, I became more of an Americanist than I ever was before and more interested in George O'Keefe than I ever was before. This sounds like a kind of a combination of a detective project and being influenced by the environment around you. And um, it sounds like it it sort of changed your view being in the land where George O'Keefe lived. And so few of us actually know about that part of her life. I was I. Yeah, I kind of feel like, um, uh, you know, that I came here in a way sort of following in her footsteps because she was the only faculty member in the art department between 1916 and 1918 in the very university and the very department where I work now. And, um, you know, so thinking about her being an outsider to the area and being sometimes welcomed and sometimes questioned. I've been through that myself as well. And so, yes, you know, seeing the land through her eyes as someone not from here, I could relate to that. And, um, 
Yeah, so I say, and the detective work, you know, every good historian, I think, loves detective work, and I certainly do, and it was really fun to dig in and to read her writings, which I never thought of her as a writer, but she's an amazing writer. Uh, It's private writing, it's letter writing, but she put pen to paper much like she puts her brush to paper in this era, and I discovered that. I had no idea. You know, that part of your book is I found really intriguing to hear her voice through her letters. And it it's not what I expected necessarily because I have that iconic view of O'Keefe we all have as an older woman. And I one of the my favorite parts of your text was when she was talking about um, individuals she liked and didn't like. She certainly had some strong opinions that you drew from those uh, that correspondence. And I thought that that just brings her alive. Yeah, it does. It it brings it to life. It makes her a whole person, a complex person. And being an icon can be, you know, um, good and bad, I guess. Or or it can limit someone, too, because we expect her to always have behaved the way we think she behaved in a certain period and had the same opinions that she had. And we all know that a a life is complex and she lived long enough to have many changes in her life. And this was a moment where she didn't even foresee her own future in a way that we almost want to read retrospectively onto this period. And I think that that was a mistake that was made for a long time. But when you return to her own voice in that period, she had no idea she would become the icon of O'Keefe that she did. I mean, it was up for grabs what her life would look like. It might have been a teacher in the panhandle, married to a rancher at that moment. And, you know, then by 1918, she's back in New York living with Stieglitz. So you never know what's going to happen around those blind corners. But you get that sense of her being much more complicated and complex in an interesting way. And I think I, you know, discovered things about her that the icon didn't represent for me, but I liked that discovery. And you really convey this trajectory so well in the book. And this might be a good chance to ask you to tell us a little bit about how O'Keefe even got to West West Texas and why she came. Yeah, well, again, if, you know, I can return to this theme of following in her footsteps, why did I come to West Texas for a job? And why did she come for a job? And she came twice. And that's one thing that I find fascinating. She came once in 1912 to the new city of Amarillo, but it was urban by that moment. It wasn't rural like Canyon. And so, I mean, even the difference there is something that someone from the outside might not recognize. But 1912, she came to Amarillo to teach in the newly founded Amarillo School District. And she needed to get those hours before she could return to UVA and teach over the summers with her mentor at UVA. And so, you know, it's not that she thought she would stay forever, but she had the opportunity through a colleague of hers to teach in a new school district that actually paid better than on the East Coast, which is surprising. You know, you wouldn't think of that, but they had the money to recruit somebody with an impressive resume. And they got her resume wrong, which I find so interesting. They said she graduated from a university that she didn't graduate from, and she didn't even have her degree that they claimed she did. But I think that that opportunity for her opened um, new doors 
for her career as a teacher, but also as an artist coming to this new place. And then so she returned again for the same reason, 1916, for a job, this time as a faculty member at a new university. So she was moving up in the world at that moment. You know, I mean, a lot of times people around here say, hey, she was a teacher here or an instructor here, but she actually was a faculty member. And I really wanted to emphasize that. You know, she was one of the few, maybe 24 faculty members on campus, but she was one of those respected few. And so, you know, it was for an opportunity, for a job. She writes in her autobiography about wanting to get to the the Old West that she read about. And I think there was that, too, that kind of mythology of the West lured her, but I think was also a very practical reason. It really sounds like the life of the artist. There's the practical need for money, and then it also as you explain in your book, seems as though the West Texas period was very fruitful for her in terms of her artistic development. Um, would you speak to us a little bit about how that landscape may have affected her art and maybe speak about, in the book you have that wonderful section about the red images that she developed while in West Texas? Sure, yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of ways I could explain it, but one, I mean, the thing, when you ask how a landscape or a place affects someone artistically, I mean, it's some things that are sort of ecologically obvious when you live here, but if you don't know what to look for, you might miss it. So looking at her Virginia works versus her works um, in West Texas, the colors shift to more translucent colors, a sort of orangey or red rather than a red with blue base. And they also get a kind of dryness to them, which makes perfect sense in an arid landscape like we live in versus a very wet landscape like Virginia. You can even see, you know, not only does she go from the mountains to the plains, which she writes about in her letters, and you can clearly see that shift where she, you know, she get, it gets deeper than just the subject matter. It's also the way she conveys it through color, through, um, you know, the different pooling of the um, technique, it's, she deals with pluming and pooling, but it's not as overall. It's like these little spots of pooling around dryness. It's really interesting the way that she, the specificity that she gets at when you've lived here and you've breathed this air and you know what it's like, she gets at that in a very remarkable way. And, you know, I only discovered that so much when I was spending time at the George O'Keefe Museum with the actual watercolors, because you can look at these things in reproduction. And until you really see the paint on the paper, it's you can't get that sense deeply. And they are, to see them in person is really magical. And so I think that's why this exhibition was so turning point, because first of all, those works had not been collected and displayed together maybe ever. Um, she kept a lot of them in her own collection and didn't sell them, didn't show them, you know, throughout her life. So they were very, very fresh. And they, you know, have been dispersed too. You know, the MoMA has one and Milwaukee has one and we have a few here and the Georgia Museum has the bulk of them. But to have them all collected together in one space and you could compare those colors and see how, oh, that red and this red are the same. And I think, you know, thinking of metaphorical colors, our canyon here is uh, unique and connected to like the Grand Canyon or Canyon lands in America that one would think of. And it has this orange terracotta color to it but she saw that as a red not orange she doesn't talk about oranges it was red to her and she also talks about you know people having 
red blood cells and she likes those people, but the ones with white blood cells, she doesn't. The redness, she even compares her own body and the reds and pinks she uses to render her own body to the red landscape. So there was all of this like passion or um, life that she sees in the red. She found it and she also um, sought it out. Like she, it, she found it in her own mind as much as she found it in the landscape, if that makes any sense. But the red was key, and I could talk at length about the red, so you probably hit a button there. But, yeah, the red is fascinating. Well, I want all of the listeners to be aware that the way Amy has so accurately described that relationship between the color and the nature and then how that affects the artist is a really good reason to read the book because in her text, in Amy's text, she captures that same dynamic, and I think you complicate O'Keefe more than sometimes we do because we feel we understand all of her famous works. And um, there was something I wanted to ask about the watercolors. You mentioned in the book that she liked to work in the evenings and on the floor. Is, yeah. And and do you have any anything else to say about those two kind of different strategies? Yeah, she, I mean, in the evenings, it makes sense she worked at that time, not because it was ideal light, but because she had a day job. So, you know, like the time that she found to work was in her off hours. And on the weekends, she would be driven out to the canyon by one person or another and spend time out there on the weekends. She went walking at night and then she would work either on the porch of the house where she lived or in the room where she rented. But she wasn't doing these Um, by hanging them on some kind of easel or something. She was always working where they were horizontal so that the pooling effects of the water and the color being added to the water that was first added to the paper pools in this kind of uh, way that makes sense. She was working horizontally. And that was another thing that, you know, like I didn't have the language to talk about that until I got into the O'Keeffe project. And I've learned a lot just about watercolor techniques, but it seems very obvious her technique matches the descriptions that she says in her letters about, you know, sitting on the porch and working or sitting on the floor and working. And we even have photographs that Stieglitz took of her at work in front of a flower when she had moved back to New York. So, you know, we know that this was her technique, but she was also working on small pieces of paper. It wouldn't have really made sense to hang them from an easel, you know. So... Just thinking about like the logistics, she also worked on small pieces of paper so she could throw away, she worked through a lot and then throw away what she didn't like. And she talks at one point about having a stack of papers that made her feel reckless, you know, so that blank page that she could experiment on, but it was a small page, almost like eight and a half by 11. I so wish that we could go through the garbage and have some of those, uh, the ones she threw away. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. And also, um, she did, as you explain in the book, she did do nude studies using the watercolor techniques. And could you tell us a little bit more about the impact of those and the way she used her own body as the subject? Yeah, this is another really fascinating part of the story because It gets into, you know, understanding the society here as much as it is understanding her technique because at the time she was teaching only women, although women and men both attended the school. It was a teaching school, teaching college, so teaching teachers to teach elsewhere, right? And so she did not have access to life drawing herself or 
apart, she could not teach life drawing classes from the nude. Uh, this is something that she writes about that she did take in Chicago, and her, she even writes in her autobiography that she was a little bit scandalized when the first nude male walked into the room and she was supposed to draw him. So this was a moment when women were only maybe first being allowed to draw from the living nude, but she found a way to draw from the nude um, in a private setting in her own room. She would use a mirror and she would draw from her body, uh, and she painted her body in, in a series of watercolors. Um, and, and what's so interesting about the way that she approaches those nudes is that she does a lot of the same things that she continues to do throughout her life, which is once she gets a form that she likes, she will invert the colors. So she'll make the body red and the face blue or the hair blue, and then she'll invert it. So suddenly you have a giant blue body and red accents. And so she does that into her later years, too. We have the bone paintings where she's looking at the sky through the white bone, but then suddenly the bone and the sky become two different colors rather than white and blue. Um, so, you know, there's techniques that she's experimenting with that you can trace throughout her entire career. Uh, but the other thing that I think is really interesting is that at that moment with those nudes, those nudes are very much full of like movement and um, instability in a really interesting way. So many of her later oil paintings are very hard edged and stable in their final presentation and so you know the one that's the book cover alone I was just looking at it again it's almost like she moved herself in space and then registered that movement through the strokes of watercolor and you just don't see that kind of dynamism in a lot of later paintings so I think she was experimenting with style and technique and some things carried through and some things didn't but you know then there's also the story of like why she didn't continue doing watercolors and the easy answer of course is that Stieglitz um you know, it was easier for him to sell her oil paintings. It was better on the market. So he really discouraged her from doing watercolors. But she had, she did watercolors from the beginning of doing art. And she learned that as the earliest technique. And she was very adept at it. But she really doesn't pursue that into her later career so much. So, yeah, you've that's another really key thread that you could trace, like, the history of her nudes. The other thing that I will say really quickly, which is fascinating to me, is that though she couldn't seek out life drawing from the nude elsewhere, she would go to the WT swimming pool, which I just had a student do a report on this swimming pool that she writes about, and she compares it to it being even better than the one at Columbia in New York. It's in the basement of the one building that was on campus. And that one building is still used, but it has no swimming pool at the bottom of it. So we were all shocked to learn this when the student gave this report in one of my classes. And she would go there and draw um, swimmers. And we don't have any of the remaining works, but we know from her letters that she would say to Stieglitz, I was at the pool drawing. So, very now, interesting. It is interesting, and again, it's a stereotype buster, so to speak. I just, thinking of Georgia O'Keeffe in a swimming pool and, and looking at this yeah. live, you know, this motion-based kind of study that she's pursuing. So interesting, and along the line of surprises that we learned from your book, Georgia O'Keeffe taught fashion? Yeah, which, I mean, we see her as a fashion icon in a way because she is so, like, breaking gender norms at that early moment. But in Canyon, Texas, which is, you know, remains very rural, conservative, even to this day, imagining her teaching these young girls fashion, what their mothers thought when they were learning what they were learning, it's interesting. But the thing is, is the student interviews that we still have recorded 
the students remembered the lessons that she taught them. So like, for example, this one woman talks about being a larger woman and O'Keefe would suggest vertical stripes and dark colors and simplicity and sorts of things that, you know, go along with her design aesthetic anyway, but it was something about like the way to live your life, not just drawing or not just fashion. And one of the things that's interesting too about a normal school, which is a teacher's college, um, and she was teaching women, she was teaching them in the way to either become teachers where they would then teach their students drawings, or she would teach them home ec type lessons. So the fact of her drawing classes consisted of her students drawing models that were wearing clothes and talking and learning about clothing. So it's not the fashion design that you might think of, but it's still just this really interesting take on what she presented to her students, what it meant for her overall aesthetic for life and art, and how those students took in those lessons. It's really endearing, and I think that that's a really underdeveloped part of the scholarship on O'Keefe, her as a teacher. And obviously, she didn't remain um, a full-time teacher, you know, past 1918, but she still was a mentor to many people, and she was engaged with, like, even in Abiquiu, she had students that she would support as they went to college or, you know, pursued their education. So she always kind of carried that on, and I think that that's a thread we could look more into in the future of O'Keefe studies. You know, one of the quotes in your book that I took down in my notes and I will probably never forget is O'Keefe writing, I got so interested in teaching, I wondered why I should be paid for it. Yeah, which is so funny. It's so her too, because she, you know, that passion that she clearly had and how much, and she was even teaching in the, um, I don't remember what they called it, but it was like the kids college where they would have the adult teachers, the student teachers teaching young kids, and that was also where she was educating children and the teachers. And so we have her describing how her her children, I think she called them that, something very endearing, her kids, they would draw, um, you know, like very simple things, but she was also educating children how to draw. And so I think it's just so interesting that she was, um, she had this sense about her place as a teacher and her place as a um, an artist was just so overlapped at that time. And I don't think she totally loses that, but I think we've lost sight of that in her in her narrative. Oh, I think so, and that's another reason your book is such a good contribution. And I'm wondering while we're on the subject of teachers. Um, if you might just speak a little bit about the influence of Arthur Wesley Dow on O'Keefe. Sure. Um, that is something that she was being educated through her UVA professor who was a student of Dow even before she was being educated directly by Dow. So she was getting it even before WT and it had been really been ingrained in her over the years and she took those lessons with her. She It's so funny because she took from Dow the um, filling a space in a beautiful way idea. And in her autobiography, she credits it to herself in an interesting way. Like she leaves Dow out of it, but we know that that line was his. She absorbs him so much that it almost becomes her mantra instead of like a mantra that she learned. And um, so one of the things that you can see so clearly is his methods 
where it's like one of them is opposition. He had all of these like analytical methods for how to produce a good design within a rectangle, a square, a circle, something like this. And she always thought within a frame and she could actually take an image and draw it on a very, very small scale and have the proportions be such like at such an advanced state that then she could expand it into the larger model without using projection or some of these things that we depend on. She was very, very good at filling a space. And um, she would even talk about how she was teaching her students to draw a rectangle and then to put a door in it to kind of start filling that space. So she's doing that Dow method from the beginning and continues it throughout her career. That's like undoubtable. But she also, um, when you see some of the simplistic works that she did, like a very small works when she first came to the panhandle that have a, a windmill and a house in them. And these, I don't think these were reproduced in large scale in the book, but they were in small scale in the essay. Um, she's using the Dow method of like a large thing on one side and a small thing in the back that creates a space of depth and also asymmetrical balance. Um, even her train picture with its kind of um, cyclical balance is something where open space versus filled space is something she learned from Dow. So, I mean, it's very, very clear the influences that his teaching had on her and that she took that with her into every classroom, at least when she was full-time teaching here in Texas. I thought that the uh, section of your narrative on the windmills was very enlightening for the reasons you just explained why, you know, the sort of compositional setup, but also you had mentioned the windmills as related to the industrial age or the machine age. So do you feel that O'Keefe, with all of her love of the nature and the color, embraced things of, like, we know she did the skyscrapers, the windmills, you mentioned the train. Um, did she yeah. ever speak about that? modern era element or she did I think she did um but she saw them as forms and she talks about this like when she's talking about the houses in Texas like how she finds them so ugly when like the sky is like at noon say when the sun is above and all of the details of that house that's so barren and just like you know wooden and ugly she finds them ugly but when they're silhouetted against the horizon and they become a flattened shape she finds those shapes beautiful and I think that that's the difference between say if you look at it like a precisionist work of a grain sallow or um, like kind of factory bolting or something like that she would never have done that kind of detail work but she saw the very same shapes as beautiful so she does the strut on that um, like the water or the water tower and the windmill as lines and she finds the linearity and the verticality that is um, in contrast to the horizontality of the landscape very beautiful so it's not like the object itself and all of its industry is beautiful and like even with the train picture she minimizes the trainness of the train and looks at it as this just basic teardrop shape that then emits the steam so you know yes and no and she even says like she loves cars she loves riding in cars she loves taking her headscarf off and letting her hair flow in the cars but she didn't like trains because they were sort of dirty and not really freeing in the same way as cars so she has all these opinions about technology but she's also just living through it it's like anyone would have opinions about the technology that they're using day to day um so i, th I find that question really fascinating and that the moment when she was in texas 
is also the moment where you had trains, cars, and horse-drawn carriages still because she writes about, well, I caught a ride home with a farmer in pulling a hay wagon. His horse was pulling a hay wagon or something like this. And then the very same week, she would take the train up to Amarillo and she would ride in a car with a friend. So, you know, this moment in history right around World War One is just absolutely fascinating. And you get such a snapshot of the facets of that moment through O'Keefe. So, you know, coming to her as just, is it a O'Keefe story? Yes, it, but it's so much more than just a story about this iconic artist, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think you, you condense so well these many themes, these many threads, and you mentioned contextualizing O'Keeffe's work in the social context of the time. Um, in that period, it for her to even go alone to Texas fascinates me just from the gender dynamics. Um, do you think that was just her sheer will? Or um, I don't know. I just I find that amazing. And then to live alone. I know in your book you have some, you know, she had her little place where she stayed and I expect that the town people thought she was a little offbeat. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I think about that, too. I mean, for me to get on the train and ride to New York today, I would be, like, slightly nervous just because of the, like, how long it would take and that I would be alone and what would I see and all these things. She did this in, you know, 1912. and um, But yet people were traveling by train at that time all over. It was very common, but... You know, she didn't have a family to fall back on at that time. Like they were, um, you know, like they were unable to support her. So if she wanted to support herself, she had to make these decisions on her own. But she was also very independent to start with. You know, she like her family moved to Virginia, I think it was, and she stayed behind and lived with an aunt in Wisconsin and then took classes in Chicago. So she had been living kind of independently prior to getting on that train. And yet she, I still think it was this amount of bravery that it really impresses me. And, and, and the thing that like, I just, I don't know, I get choked up when I think about this because she did have one contact in Amarillo who she had met at a, a, one of her private schools that she attended um, during her education. And that woman, by the time she arrived there, that woman was no longer alive. She died of the flu. You know, so this was a time when life and death was, you know, we, we take for granted that you could just call somebody up and say, I'm on my way, and, and then they would be there to greet you. But it take it took long enough on that train for her to get there that she would have had no idea that this friend of hers had passed. And she even had to, like, mourn that loss by the time she showed up. And this is the kind of life you get through these letters that we didn't have a lot of before the release of those letters in 2006 because she gifted them to the Beinecke at Yale saying they had to remain out of public eye for 20 years. And so they were suddenly available. And it gives us this new perspective on all of those complications that she had to face. Although the Amarillo years, she wasn't writing to Stieglitz or Anita Pollitzer. And that's another misconception. We really don't have a lot of primary source documentation from her Amarillo years, which is 1912 to 14. So it's a lot of conjecture. Um, but we do know some things that the biographers did a really good job on that period because really stuff hasn't changed that much from what we knew originally. But some people think to take Pollitzer's statement about O'Keefe's time in Amarillo at face value. But you must remember that that would have been relayed to Pollitzer as a memory later, if that makes any sense. So like thinking like a historian, you have to evaluate the weight of your sources. 
And so whatever Pulitzer says, she couldn't have been receiving that information firsthand directly from O'Keefe as she lived it, which is during 1916 to 18, the letters were unveiling what happened to her day to day. And we have that record. So it's like even the two different places she lived, um, we have one that's incredibly richly documented. That's the Canyon years and one that's like very sparsely documented. And that's the Amarillo years. You mention your method, which has so much of a basis in primary source. And I wanted listeners to hear a little bit about what it was like to read those letters. Um, if they only, some of them were only available in 2006, you must have been one of the first people to really comb through the letters. Um, I don't think that's actually true. I would love to give myself that credit. But, um, you know, by this time that many of them have been published in Sarah Greenout's book, My Faraway One, there's a good long section of those letters um, from Can- the Canyon years in that book. But Greenow um, selected certain letters that seemed to be most important for her narrative, which was the relationship between Stieglitz and O'Keefe. And so some of the like daily life details about Canyon weren't selected for that publication. So there were ones that, you know, I had to cull through, um, but most of the work could be done from not from sitting at a desk in Beinecke and reading the original. So what was so nice is that, um, you know, I could get at them typed. I mean, it's nice to read her handwriting, but that would have taken a very long time to even decipher her spelling. So a lot of the things have been at least transcribed into typed format online you could sit here and read you know a section of them today and so that kind of like access I think is what allows us to have to to produce this kind of work more quickly than maybe in 2006 when they were first released but in that 10 years you know they've been started to be cold through but I don't think anybody was really asking directly about the canyon years like I was I mean I sort of dove into that portion um, in a new way but the letters themselves Um, I wasn't by any means the first person to get to go through those. I was maybe the first person with the eye to Canyon, uniquely. Well, I'm very personally very happy that you you did work on that section. Um, One of the reasons I thought this book would be really good for the network is I don't believe most of us know about this period. And is it true, getting a little bit um, back to the watercolors and the exhibition, were any these watercolors were exhibited at the 291? Is that correct? Um, some were, some were, not all of them, and that is something that's hard to work out exactly what was exhibited. Um, the catalog raisonne has a good track on which things were in 291 and when. I mean, because 291 closed after you know the war broke out in April of 1917, and the last show that Stieglitz put together was O'Keeffe's solo show. So there's this pivotal moment in time when so much is happening, and I don't remember if we have the full list, the like catalog list of what was on the wall, but for the most part, we know it was there. But he selected things for that show that were... Uh, edited out of her entire body, and it's hard to know exactly which things she sent to Stieglitz, but she was continuously sending him examples of her work as she produced them. But what's interesting is that he would have held on to those, and then they would have returned to her when she arrived back in 
New York in 1918. So they basically, even if she sent them to him, they stayed within her private collection. And that's, that's what I find really interesting. And that's also why when you look at her 1976 um, autobiography, so many of them actually make it into that autobiography because she still had them and they still meant something to her. So I find that fascinating too, which one she sort of held onto as part of her maybe development or part of things that she wasn't kind of using as the same kinds of things as her, um, you know, marketable oils, but she kept those as precious objects, in my opinion, for so long, and that makes them even more interesting as works, you know. She, they weren't throwaway works to her. They were something that she kept throughout her whole life. It really is notable, and um, looking through the book, which is gorgeously illustrated with the same scale, as I understand, the watercolor reproductions you see in the book are the same scale as in real life. It's um, what an artist chooses to hold back is just leads to something about the importance. And I'm wondering, do you know if O'Keefe ever returned to Texas or spoke about returning after her time there? Yeah. um, Okay. This is really interesting. There's several answers to that question. One, she returns to the memory of Texas several times in these works that she calls from the plains. And some of them are sort of rounded, uh, something that looks a little bit like a saw blade edge, and they're different colors. One of them is sort of a purple-blue hue set of hues, and the other one is like this very, very bright orange and yellow. But those were for memories, almost sound memories. And she writes in her, I believe it's in her autobiography, and maybe other places too, that what it was based on is um, the memory of cows lowing at the cattle yards that she, you know, Canyon and Amarillo were centers of cattle shipping and marketing and things like this. So she would have heard the cows. And so it's not, it doesn't look exactly like the landscape she was doing when she was living here, but those memories stick with her. And she continued to do those even into the fifties. There's not a lot of them, but it's like that memory stayed with her. Um, did she go back to, to Canyon? Yes. One time she came through, she would drive through on her way to New Mexico because she often drove between New Mexico and New York. Um, she learned how to drive in the twenties and started driving herself and maybe another companion across the country quite often. And we know that she stopped in and would like leave a postcard if he wasn't in for Ted Reed, who was a friend, a potential kind of like suitor at the time when she lived here. But, you know, he got married and she stayed in touch with the wife, um, Ruby as well. And so it was a very friendly kind of stopover, but she would stop in Canyon and see the people she cared about. She also stopped one time and um, kind of sent a postcard from the Panhandle Plains Museum, which is our museum on campus. So we have a couple moments, like that was in the 30s that she did that. And then we have, I don't know, maybe like one a decade at least when she kind of corresponds with Ted Reed and says, I've been passing through. So she comes back, but she never stays. And then there's this other really amazing quote that Stieglitz says, how she wants to go back to Texas and I should, I should really think about taking her, but then he never does. And he never goes, he never goes to New Mexico. He never goes to Texas. He never leaves the East coast. And so it's just so fascinating that there's this moment where he contemplates helping her get back to Texas, even for a visit. Like she misses the open plains or something and then it doesn't happen. (laughs) So, yes, I, I, uh, so many unanswered questions with that comment. I, 
I think that um, a nice and important part of your book is that the relationship with Stieglitz is, of course, known to people, but you really give O'Keefe her time and her due without yeah. getting into the 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 stories about their relationship. And um, as we wrap up this really fascinating conversation, I'm wondering if there's any part of the story you still want to work on. Is there something you discovered when doing your research that might take you into a new project concerning O'Keefe? Um, I'm glad you asked. Yes, I am working on a new project. And it's funny that the last thing you touch upon, like giving her her voice or her, her time, that's what I'm working on. Uh, O'Keefe as a writer. I want to edit a volume of her letters from Canyon that are just her. Like the thing about the My Far Away one is those, it's such a wonderful volume of letters and it's a conversation back and forth between Stieglitz and O'Keefe. And so for what it is, it's absolutely invaluable for O'Keefe studies. Um, but to really understand, and this is going to be published within a series that is called American West, plural. And I'm trying to argue that O'Keefe is an interpreter of the American West in its early days through writing in a way we don't realize. Like we realize that her works of art absolutely are visual interpretation, but you know, giving her credit for her own written word, um, that's really what I'm interested in now. And so, you know, letting that voice kind of resonate in a different way. Um, yeah, that's what I think needs to be done next. I think it's going to be an exciting volume, but it will also shed light on, you know, for people who aren't O'Keefe scholars, I'm really hoping it could be read by someone who is um, interested in American West studies more generally. Oh, definitely. And in the writing that you are looking into, is is it mostly letter writing? Does she have any other creative type of writing or um, essay? You know, I have I have not found essays or poems or anything. It's all letters that I have found. Um, so I'll keep digging, but for the most part, it's letters. Um, and most often in those years, it's to Stieglitz, but it's also to Strand, Paul Strand, and to other people as well. So kind of, you know, pulling together um, her voice in those pivotal years, even though it was only two years, 1916 to 18, but so much happened to her in that moment. And so much was happening in America and in the American home front at that moment during the war. I mean, there's just a wealth of discoveries to be had, I think. Well, I really look forward to your next installment in this story of the this lesser studied period of O'Keefe, which now we can't really say that anymore because Amy has developed this wonderful book. But really, um, two years, I think when we look back at your book, it really sets a much deeper context for the O'Keefe that we might know from her later years. And I want to thank you very much for taking time to speak with us today. And um, if there's any final I, comments you would like to yeah, add? Can I make one more comment? I just want to say that the design of the book is, is um, like what, I had a very small portion in the design of the book, and it's really two people that I want to credit because this book is a work of art itself. And that's Radius Press um, director uh, David Chickie and the curator at the George O'Keefe Museum, Carolyn Kastner. And they were the ones that, you know, worked through the production of this book at, at, with digital color matching and the sizes, even the nudes that are larger, they're fold-out images. 
the fact that my essay is removable and you could read it alongside looking at these full-scale images of these watercolors and the fact that even things that weren't in the exhibition are included in the book. So it's like the ideal exhibition of bringing together her works from the Canyon years. Um, so I think that the book itself isn't just about the stories we've been talking about, which is about that, but it's also just, you know, a, an experience of an artistic book tangible and visual and it's really remarkable and that is true um the book is is unique it's a gorgeous book and i like what you just reminded us about you can pull the portion you wrote out and then you can look at the images while reading the text and that's i find i found it a very avant-garde format very beautiful book well amy thank yeah. you again Sure. Yeah, that's the um, that's Radius Press all the way. I can credit them only with that, and they are amazing, really. So give them their due, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you. And um, will when you get that other book of George O'Keefe's writing out, you will be the next guest on the podcast. Speaking of Georgia O'Keefe, so thank you again, and yes, we look forward to hearing more from you. Okay. Thank you, Kristen.